Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there. Welcome Space Monkeys. Or maybe I should welcome myself back to my own podcast since it's been a little while since I've recorded. I've been in Spain and also in Japan in the last month, so it's been quite busy. I was in Japan visiting my daughter. She's doing some studying there, and we had the opportunity to travel throughout the country, and that was a pretty remarkable experience. We ate lots and lots of new foods. There were many experiences where I put something in my mouth having no idea what the consistency or texture or flavor of this food was going to be. And most of the times it was pretty surprising. A trip for the adventurous. And also we got to take a lot of bullet trains, which was cool. We also learned much more about what a tanuki is. We also got to visit Hiroshima, which in case you don't know, is where the United States dropped the first atomic bomb in World War II. We visited the atomic bomb dome and the atomic bomb museum in the city. And the experience was nothing short of remarkable and also horrifying. I can't say it was fun in any way. However, I'm really grateful. I got the opportunity to go see Hiroshima and experience it and learn about it. I'll just say that I think that it would be good if more people visited that city and understood firsthand what nuclear weapons are capable of, even one made as long ago as that one was. The bomb dropped over Hiroshima, detonated about 2K above the city, and 2% of fission was achieved in the bomb approximately. So now, of course, we have bombs that can achieve, I don't know, probably 98% fission or something like that. I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I don't know for sure, but I think it's safe to say that we can destroy many, many, many Hiroshimas over again in today's modern arsenal of weapons. Visiting the museum was quite intense. They had many, many photographs and even some film of the city in the days after the bomb dropped. But the part that I wasn't really expecting was the personal stories about 
citizens of the city and their attempt to find loved ones to survive how fast the city was operational again and rebuilt was insane. It was completely remarkable. And the tenacity of the Japanese spirit after such an atrocity was also quite notable. But the horrific nature of the radiation and the impact it had on the people was hard to miss. And while it was difficult to read the stories about little girls searching for their moms and see actual tricycles that look like they had been, well, I don't know, baked in an oven for several weeks, I'm glad that I went. It was uh, profoundly educational and moving. So kind of a dark topic, but I felt compelled to share that with you all. Uh, Japan is a beautiful country. It's a very strange land. It's kind of like visiting Mars, but with people that are really, really, really polite. And the food's amazing. So on to cycling discussions or more specifically today, I'm going to talk about lower cross syndrome. Perhaps you've already heard my other podcast on upper cross syndrome. And I took some time to dissect this postural condition, lower cross syndrome is sort of reciprocal in some ways. And I'll begin with the same disclaimer, which is that I don't really love the word syndrome. I think it's a pretty serious word and it has some pretty nefarious overtones, undertones, tones. And sometimes when we use words like syndrome, I think people can latch onto them. If they go to a PT and they were told they had lower cross syndrome, they might think that it was a genetic disease, or they might just assign more permanence to this description than is needed. Upper cross syndrome and lower cross syndrome are really nothing more than a collection of muscle length tension imbalances, which is another way to say that you have some muscles that are way too tight and other muscles that are too loose. More technical way to say that would be some muscles that are hyperfacilitated or perhaps hypertonic and other muscles that are too that are uh, underactivated or are um, insufficiently innervated or incapable of being innervated properly. That is to say, activated or under facilitated would be another way to say that. So that can be undone. How? Well, you exercise the muscles that are under facilitated or are weak and long, you strengthen them, and then you stretch the muscles that are hyper-facilitated. An interesting sidestep in this discussion is the idea that static stretching, probably the way that most of us think of stretching, actually inhibits muscular action. So if you think of stretching in the most generic sense, the most perhaps archetypal sense, uh, let's imagine like a hamstring hurdler stretch. So you're going to sit on the ground and extend one leg forward with the other bent and the bent leg will have the hip open so that the knee is kind of laying on the ground, right? The thigh is laying on the ground and the, and the knee is almost touching the ground or maybe is. And the leg you're stretching, let's pretend it's your left leg in this example, is extended straight out in front of you. And your toes are pointed up towards the ceiling. And you're reaching forwards with both arms towards that left foot. And you're going to hold this position of tension in the hamstrings for a given length of time. Maybe it's 12 seconds, maybe it's 30 seconds, maybe it's 60 seconds. And as a general observation or principle, 
the longer you hold that stretch, the more you will inhibit the action of the hamstring for a given period of time after that static stretch. So basically what I'm saying is if you hold a stretch for a long time, you're turning the muscle off, so to speak. So if you understand this basic principle, one, you get that if, for example, you're about to go for your bike ride, you don't want to do a bunch of static stretching with, for example, your quadriceps and glutes, because we want your quads and glutes to be active on the bike. So we don't want to turn them off, right? On the other hand, if you have a muscle pattern or a syndrome such as lower cross syndrome, and you know which muscles are hypertonic or hyperfacilitated, then you can actually use static stretching before your exercise to help inhibit the motion, the action of those muscles. And that's actually a bit required, or I'll say it's the proper order of operations. Because if you have a postural syndrome, lower cross or upper cross, whatever it may be, or some other variety of these, they come in all kinds of flavors, upper and lower, just sort of general bins that we put people in for educational purposes. But of course, the individual always has their own little unique spin on things. When we begin exercise and we are in the condition where we have some muscle length tension imbalances, some syndrome, if we start exercising, what we're going to do is, well, what we have been doing is exercising in a way that has been utilizing certain muscles in certain joint angles and overusing some muscles and underusing others. That's why you end up with this postural syndrome because you're using some muscles in a particular way too much, right? This will make a little more sense as I explain it further, but this is the basic concept. And so if we don't activate the muscles that are being underutilized and also inhibit the muscles that are being overutilized, then when we go to exercise, we're just going to exercise in the same way we always have in the past, in spite of even quite conscious attention. So this can be one particularly frustrating aspect of a sport like cycling is you go out with the intention to pedal a different way and you're just full of all kinds of positive energy to make an impact on your function. And then somehow that doesn't seem to quite manifest. Now, why is that? This is why. There's a principle in physiology where a nervous system pathway becomes, also we can use the word facilitated, I don't want to overuse that word, um, becomes, we'll say greased, right? It's like putting lube on the chain. So the more often you use a particular nervous system pathway, the easier that pathway becomes to use and the more integrated it becomes, the more of a default move, uh, method of movement, the more involved it becomes in your default mode of movement, we'll say. That's how I would describe it. And this law of facilitation happens during repetitive exercise, like cycling or other endurance sports, such as running or cross-country skiing or swimming. Cycling, arguably more so because our movements are so precisely repetitive because the pedal stroke really doesn't change much from pedal stroke to pedal stroke, meaning there's only a tiny, tiny fraction of flexion in the frame, the bottom bracket, and in the system of the crank and the pedal and the cleats. 
and maybe there's a tiniest amount of heel movement in each pedal stroke. And then of course your, your butt can shift on the saddle left to right, or maybe a little bit forward to aft. Assuming you're seated out of the saddle, things change a little more, but really you're producing submaximal amounts of force in almost exactly the same joint ranges on every single pedal stroke. And you do that thousands and thousands of times in a single ride. That's not even that long. So when that nervous system pathway becomes facilitated, then it's sort of like a river establishing a path through a field or maybe a forest. And the water sort of digs a groove into the earth. And then that groove gets deeper and more water runs through that groove. And then as more water runs through, it takes away more earth and digs the groove deeper. And then it becomes a trench. And then it becomes a small valley. And then it becomes a canyon over thousands of years. This is the way nervous systems work as well. So if you go out and try to consciously change the way you pedal, you're sort of fighting against all these canyons, especially if you've been riding for many, many years. This is why in the first Avatar movie, the woman talks about how the Marine's cup is full. And he says, no, my cup is empty. And she says, let us see if we can cure this insanity. So what she means there is that his cup is already full. He's, he's, it's a metaphor, but we can use it to parallel what I'm talking about now in physiology, which is simply that when you've learned to do something one way, it's harder to relearn, to unlearn what you have learned. Also to quote Yoda, you have to unlearn what you have learned. Whereas when you're new to cycling, we can instill good habits and get the right canyons built from the beginning. So the easy example to think about this practically, if I lost you with all that metaphor and different talk about weird movies is thinking about, I have clients who come to me frequently and they say, yeah, you know, I, I've realized that my glutes don't fire very much when I'm cycling or my PT told me my glutes don't turn on, or, um, I realized that I've really weak glutes. And so I try to pedal with my glutes and it kind of works, but I'll tell you, we're really ice skating uphill on that one. Uh, cycling is not a sport that promotes glute engagement for a variety of reasons. But once you've sort of built the canyon of quad dominance in cycling, it takes more than conscious attention alone to change that pattern, right? First thing is you have to have your bike fit right, your cleats in the right position, etc. But then you've got to start to re-pattern the way you flex and extend the hip and the knee under load. And the best way to do that is with pattern interrupters, which means things that aren't the bike. Because as soon as you get on the bike, you're in the same canyon system. You're in the same tributary system. And all the nerves will just go down the path that's easiest, which is the one that's been established through thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions or hundreds of thousands, maybe millions if you've been riding for a long, long time. I don't know. We should do the math on how many years and how many hours it takes to make a million pedal strokes. It's probably not as many as we think. Oh, one note I want to make before I get into this. I didn't mention this in the upper cross episode, but for those of you who listen to it, I didn't, I don't believe I talked about this, but I just want to make a quick note that the inverse of upper cross syndrome is what's known as military posture. So a really brief review, upper cross syndrome is when your thoracic spine, that's your upper spine, basically the spine that's on the backside of your lungs all the way up to your neck 
that's flexed forward. So it's rounded forward. Your shoulders are rolled forward towards your center line and your head comes forward. So your chin pokes out just as though you were riding a bike and holding up your helmet. So you kind of get this crane shaped neck, right? Uh, I believe I called it Smithers posture. No, Smithers is the assistant. It's Mr. Burns is the old man. I get those backwards. It's been a long time since I've watched The Simpsons. So Mr. Burns posture. And the opposite of that is what's known as military posture. Now, military posture is exactly what you might think it is. It's when you stand sort of artificially and tree-like in an upright posture or upright position. So much so that your upper spine, your thoracic spine, becomes ramrod straight and loses any curve. And the spine isn't meant to be dead ass straight. It's not meant to be shaped like a wall or a board. It's, it does have some natural curves in it. It has a lumbar curve and a thoracic curve and a cervical curve. And there's a proper architecture to these curves when things are in balance. When the muscle length tension relationships are in balance, these curves have normal relationships. But when we go one way or the other too far, they come out of the normal curve architecture and things become distorted and we usually have associated problems. And the body will tell us that we have problems with our muscles by letting us know and it does that through a channel called pain. This is why Paul Chuck calls pain the pain teacher. Because when your body's telling you that it's in pain, when it's registering pain, it's that's the body's language to let you know that you are living in a way that is not taking care of your biological spacesuit. And what is rule number one on this planet and in life? Sweep your own doorstep first. This is quintessential. This is the first action of every day of the rest of your life. It doesn't matter what your mission is or how important your bike race is or how important your relationship is with your loved one or your kids. You have to take care of yourself first. And you might be questioning that logic for a moment because we're all selfish bike racers and you're thinking, I already look after myself. And there is some truth to that. That's not wrong. However, the principle remains, we have to sweep our own doorsteps first. That is clean up our own lives, look after our own health, make sure our own mentality is aligned and understand our own dreams, goals, and objectives and walk towards them so that we can shine and love in the world to the best of our ability. This is how we help and inspire other people. This is also how you can be the best father, mother, husband, daughter, wife, sister, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, etc. Cyclist, coach, athlete, friend, neighbor, the list never ends. Boss or secretary, coworker, whatever. Same principle applies in all conditions. It is universal. So that was a pretty big walk into the weeds. What I was trying to get at is that the inverse of upper cross syndrome is military posture. And that means you have a ramrod straight upper spine. Your shoulders are pulled back to an excessive degree, probably to the point where your rhomboids and lats are hyper-facilitated, and your pec minor, which is actually hyper-facilitated in upper cross in military posture, since it's the inverse, your pec minor would be, you guessed it, inhibited and under-facilitated. 
So I just want to point that out, that there is an opposite to upper cross. And occasionally we see people who have been diagnosed with upper cross, and then they come to you a year later and they've got, they've given themselves military posture. And this is due to a maybe desperate sense of perfectionism. Maybe they just overdid it. The point being that what the goal of any of these conversations is, is to first know yourself and then secondarily understand where you are on a spectrum so that you can make improvement towards optimal spinal function. There's an old saying in yoga, the yogi is as young as the spine is flexible, meaning when you have really locked up portions of the spine, then you invite problems. Why? Because if two vertebra or a section of the spine is immobile, because the muscles around that section of spine are inflexible, or the fascia is locked up, uh, locked down, we'll say, and inflexible, then the segments above and below that become hypermobile in response because you still have to move through life. And when we move in life, our spine flexes and extends. That is, it bends forward and bends backwards and side to side and rotates and does all the things in all the planes. This is how you do things like pick up groceries or put your bike on the roof rack or uh, bend down to put the, I'm forgetting the end of the device that goes on the end of a floor pump, the chuck, thank you, uh, onto the valve to pump up your tire, right? Or turn the crankset so you can apply some chain lube before you go ride. The spine has to function to do all these things. It has to be able to flex and extend. So when you have sections of spine that are locked up, then you also get sections of spine that are hypermobile. And it's the hypermobile sections that usually, or segments that cause problems. This is where we end up with discs popping out of the space between vertebra. And this tends to be expensive, painful, and time-consuming. I have a client who's going through this right now, and um, it's quite sad. But as I've reminded him, as one door closes, another opens, and he is merely passing through a gate of transformation. Sometimes these gates are quite scary. Sometimes they're even terrifying. Every time we go through a gate of transformation or a doorway of transformation, we come out the other side and we are stronger. The tricky part is when we do that, sometimes we leave behind part of ourselves that we used to really love and we are forced to leave it behind in order to grow. That's where people get hung up when they don't want to let anything go. Off topic again. So uh, the bigger point on the inverse of upper cross syndrome being military posture is when we talk about lower cross today, we're also going to point out the two ends of the spectrum, right? Lower cross syndrome is fundamentally an anterior pelvic tilt. The inverse of that is a posterior pelvic tilt. So I'm going to break down what all that means and why we care. And I'll talk about ways where you can sort of start to figure out if you have one or the other and what you might do to be conscious of this pattern in your movement practice. So to begin, let's think about the pelvis like a bowl of soup. That's really what it is. It's a bowl. And if you want to pull up a drawing of a pelvis online or wherever you are, as long as you're not driving a car, uh, feel free to do that. 
You can probably just search bones of the pelvis and you'll find something. This might be helpful to visualize it. But fundamentally, we can think about the pelvis as a bowl of soup. And when we talk about anterior pelvic tilt, all we're doing is we are tipping this the, the bowl of soup forward so that the soup would pour out onto our toes. That's anterior pelvic tilt, pouring the soup on our toes. Posterior pelvic tilt would be if we were to tilt the soup bowl backwards and the soup would pour out on our heels. Pretty simple. So posterior is heels, anterior is toes. Now we can measure pelvic tilt for someone in standing and we can measure their standing posture pelvic tilt and compare it to normative ranges. And there's a, a range for males and females. The range for pelvic tilt for males is between four and seven degrees. And for women, for females, it's seven to 10 degrees. What does that mean? So what we're doing is referencing four points on the pelvis, the PSIS and the ASIS. The PSIS is the posterior superior iliac spine. And the front two spots are the ASIS, the anterior superior iliac spine. So these four points are simply ways for us to measure the location of the pelvis in space. And there's a range there. There are normative ranges. Four to seven degrees is a pretty big range, even though three degrees doesn't sound like much in the world of cycling. In the world of pelvic tilt, that's a pretty solid range. So how this works is the ASIS, the points on the front of the pelvis, are lower than the points in the back during normal posture. So you actually have a tiny bit of anterior pelvic tilt in normal standing posture that's considered normal. And I'll tell you where these points are. They're really easy to find, actually. The ASIS, you can find by just palpating the front side of your hip and that big bone that's right at the top of your femur that sticks out, that's part of your pelvis, that's your ASIS, your anterior superior iliac spine. The PSIS is much narrower and it's medial superior aspect of the glute. So find your glute, your glute max, and go to the medial aspect of that. That's towards the center line. And about two fingers out from your spine, you're going to find two bony prominences. And they're just, well, they're tuberosities, bony prominences. That's about the best way to say it. They're like little horns above your butt. If you were to roll on your back like a roly-poly on a really hard floor, you might feel them contact the floor. On some lean cyclists, you can see them through the shorts when you're riding behind them. They're sort of at the top of the sacrum, right? They make up, the sacrum is sort of a triangle shape, and these two prominences make up the top of that shape. The, top, the two upper points of the triangle. So it's not the easiest thing in the world for someone to measure this on their, on their, uh, on their own body. Um, probably impossible. Uh, Paul Check makes a gauge that I believe he invented and patented. I don't know that for sure. I know he's made some gizmos. I think this is one of them. It's called the Check Inclinometer, Pelvic Inclinometer. Maybe it's just called the Inclinometer. You can use it to measure a bunch of different things, including first rib angle and some other stuff. But you, it's it's basically a giant C clamp with um, a gravity needle on one side and a gauge that has 365 degrees on it. And so you zero it out against a vertical surface, and then you put the two points on the PSIS and the ASIS, and then you measure the angle. And you do it a few times, and you do it on left and right, because one side of the pelvis can be rotated further forward than the other. That's quite common. And then you have your numbers. And if someone were anterior, rotated to the anterior, and they had lower cross syndrome, then we would see, uh, for a male, we would see them well above seven degrees, maybe 10 or 12 or 14, would be quite a bit. 
And in a female, we would also see similar numbers, but further above 10, right? If they're close to the range, then we would understand that that person is probably, well, we understand that there's a degree of inaccuracy to this measurement. Anytime you're measuring on human beings, different things can impact the measurement and you got to take it a few times and maybe over a few days to be sure. Also, the skill of the measuree plays an impact. But if the client is close, then we know that pelvic tilt probably isn't too big of an issue unless we're seeing other things that point towards pelvic tilt being a problem, right? So anytime we're evaluating human body, what we're doing is we're sort of on a fact-finding mission and we're looking for things that support our theory. And if we find one or two facts that point us in a certain direction, but nothing else that supports that, then we're usually not too concerned about it. But if we see an anterior pelvic tilt and the client has excessive lower back pain, especially when they do anything that arches the spine, well, that's two things that support the same theory, right? That they have too much lumbar lordosis or too much curve in the lower back. So if you imagine our bowl of soup and we have anterior pelvic tilt, so we're tipping the bowl of soup forward so that we're pouring soup out on the toes, then what happens to the lower curve of the spine, the lumbar curve? The apex of the lumbar curve is right across from the belly button. So that's where the the curviest part of that curve would be or the height would be. And what we're doing is we're increasing the, the curve in the lumbar area, right? That's called hyperlordosis. So if somebody has hyperlordosis, then they have tight spiny erector muscles, right? These are the muscles that uh, will tighten up to pull the spine into that alignment, right? Because as they contract, they pull the spine into more lordosis. They pull the pelvis towards the ribcage, increasing the, the curve of the lumbar spine. So it's common for people to have really tight low backs if they have increased lumbar lordosis. That's just one um, aspect of lower cross. Another one is that people frequently have tight hip flexors. And you can see why that would be the case too. If you look at someone from the side and the pelvis is tilted forward, well, the muscles that drive or flex the front side of the hip will be tight and hyperfacilitated. That's what holds the pelvis in that posture. And probably the number one culprit on this list is the psoas, the iliopsoas or the iliacus and the psoas. So the psoas runs from the femur through the pelvis and connects to the lumbar spine. So it pulls the lumbar spine towards the femur from the front side, and it closes the angle from the femur to the lumbar spine. So if you are standing in place and you march and you lift your leg up, that is using the femur. Uh, excuse me. That is using the psoas. That is the, the function of that hip flexor. It also uses rectus femoris, which is one of the four quadricep muscles that's a hip flexor as well. We're running through a list of muscles that are hyperfacilitated during low cross syndrome. And so far we have the spiny erectae or the spinal erectors, right? These are muscles that run parallel to the spine on the backside of your body. And we have the psoas. And then we have muscles that are inhibited or under facilitated. So when someone has anterior pelvic tilt or lower cross syndrome, their butt sticks out. And one nickname you can give someone who has this syndrome is duck butt. They kind of walk with a butt that sticks out, right? 
But also, as their butt sticks out, their belly sticks out in the front. And so the muscles on the front side of their belly, specifically the lower abdominals, tend to be inhibited or not as strong as we want. So one really simple way to offset lower cross syndrome is to work on your lower abdominal tone, which for the record is has to be done with some precision. Because if you just jump into a series of normal core exercises, especially things like planks and leg lifts, especially straight leg lifts and crunches, you're not going to get anywhere. I'll explain why. This goes back to that law of facilitation. What's facilitated in lower cross syndrome? Well, your pelvis is tilted forward because your psoas is turned on all the time. It's hypertonic. So when the psoas is hypertonic, it pulls the front of the rib cage down, or excuse me, the lumbar spine forward and down, and it pulls the femur up towards that lumbar spine. And that muscle path is hyper-facilitated, meaning those connections, those neural connections are very active. So now when you go to do your crunch, you may try really hard, just like I was talking about earlier, to utilize your lower abs to raise and lower your legs during your straight leg raise, right? Just so everyone's clear, imagine a straight leg raise is when you lay on your back on the floor, you put your arms out in a T position, and then you straighten your legs above you straight up so they're pointing towards the ceiling, and then you slowly lower them down to the ground, keeping the knees straight, and then bring them back up to a vertical position. And if the psoas is hyper-facilitated because you have lower cross syndrome, all you're going to do is you're going to use your lower abs for about two reps, and then you're going to default to psoas because that neural connection is already greased. That groove is already greased. That river has already made a valley there or a canyon or even the Grand Canyon. Psoas muscles in particular tend to really be hyper-facilitated. There's also... Quite a few people who believe that the psoas is deeply connected to emotions, especially negative emotions like fear. And if you think that statement is a little bit woo, just back out for a second and consider this statement. For every emotional response to a situation, there is a physical correlation. Easy example, let's say that you're walking across the street and you see a nasty car accident. Two cars smash into each other head on. What is your immediate response? Is it only cerebral? Do you only observe with a stone cold Steve Austin face? No, of course not. You recoil, you jump. When you hear the smashing of metal, when you feel the energy impact of the cars colliding and that wave of energy goes through your body, it has a visceral impact. You feel it in your guts. You feel it in your heart. You feel your muscles tense, your heart rate will go up, your adrenaline will spike. This will be followed by a wave of cortisol. Like this is not rocket science. So any strong emotion or even any mild emotion has a physical component, a correlate to it. And the fact that people don't actually quite understand this in daily life kind of blows me away. But I try not to be too judgmental because there were many, many years of my life where I was convinced that such things were nonsense. However, I've grown. So I'm inviting you to consider the same equation. Any emotion, especially strong emotions, have a physical component. This includes positive emotions too, like love and happiness. 
I mean, when you're happy, when you're really, really outstandingly, exuberantly, joyously happy, like you just fell in love, you just got a huge raise, you just had one of the most sincere, nicest compliments anyone's ever given you. When these types of events happen in your life, you can't help to smile and feel warmth in your heart and walk a little freer and easier. You can't help to laugh more easily, more quickly. It's the physical correlate to your feeling of happiness. If you have some strong negative emotions that you're harboring in your life or that you haven't looked at or addressed, this can cause some chronic tightness of the psoas. I will submit this as a possibility. So if you embark on a mission to improve the tone of your lower abs because you're convinced that you have lower cross, and I'll give you some ideas on how you might figure out if you have lower cross or if you don't and you have too much posterior pelvic rotation, we will unpack that. If you undergo this mission to improve your lower abdominal tone and also post all your new found abs on Instagram, what's going to happen? Most likely, you're going to just make your psoas tighter and stronger and tighter and stronger and make your problem worse potentially. So this is where that advice about inhibiting your psoas before you begin core work comes in. How do we do that? Through static stretching. What are good ways to stretch the psoas? Well, there are several, but a simple one would be a couch stretch if it was done correctly. That's also going to get into some quads. Depends on who you are and how tight things are. Probably for most people, it might be more quads than psoas. Uh, a lunge stretch done the right way could be a good psoas stretch. If you're looking for resources on how to stretch specific muscles, check out Kit Laughlin's site. That's K-I-T-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. Um, I think his site is called stretchtherapy.net. He has a ton of free content that is very high quality on his site. And he is the master of static stretching. Now, Aguilar would probably be unhappy with that statement. He's not a static stretching guy but I think it has its place. That was a super random segue. If you want to know who Naudi Aguilar is, go look him up on Instagram and watch him slaughter things like yoga and watch everybody get their panties all in a bundle about it. It's good entertainment if you're into that kind of thing. Or if you just want to understand everyone's um, arguments on either side, which is what I use it for. I have more Jerry Springer in my life than I care to already, so I'll pass on the drama. But the education and understanding... That's where I'm at. Okay, so that disclaimer aside about not giving yourself a tighter so as by doing too much core, especially things like leg lifts, straight leg raises, these are these are no-fly zones for anybody who's got an anterior pelvic tilt or lumbar lordosis or lower cross syndrome, for sure. We want to exercise the lower abs in very precise ways. How do we know if we have this increased pelvic tilt without going to a check practitioner and having our pelvic tilt measured. Well, that's one way to do it. Go to a check practitioner, have them measure your pelvic tilt. But you can also put some pieces together through watching your own movement patterns. Ways to do this are a simple standing wall test, a stability ball forward roll. You can also just video yourself squatting and deadlifting. You can also use our good friend, Mr. Dowell. Don't worry, I'm going to go through each one of these a little more in detail. And then you can ask yourself simple questions like what hurts? 
Is it more painful and or uncomfortable for you? Hopefully it's just uncomfortable. If it's really painful, do not hurt yourself asking these questions or taking these tests. Is it more painful for you to do something like spinal extension, which would be a bridge or a prone cobra? Is that something you dread and hate? Or something like a forward bend, which involves forward flexion. If you really, really suck at forward bending because your back hurts, then you might have a posterior pelvic tilt. On the other hand, if you avoid any kind of spinal extension or spinal bridging, then it could be that you have increased lumbar lordosis. See what I'm getting at? If your spine is already in extension because you have um, too much, wait, I'm getting my terms backwards in my head right now. Let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. Flexion would be a forward bend. If you already have too much extension because you have too much lumbar lordosis, well, you can't get somewhere if you're already there, right? So that mean, what I'm saying is you can't go into more spinal extension if you're already in spinal extension. Even a modable vertebra has limits, of course. Every joint has limits. So if you find extension, spinal extension, that's a bridge or a prone cobra or something like that, to be a bit painful or very uncomfortable, more so than flexion, then that's your first clue. It doesn't mean you have one either anterior pelvic tilt or posterior pelvic tilt definitively. Like I said, we have to go on a fact-finding mission and look at a few different indicators, and then we start to paint the picture. And to be clear, it could be that your pelvis is perfectly within normal range. This happens, and it's the goal. And if you're a cyclist and you ride a lot and your pelvis is in a normal range, then good for you. You're doing something right. I wouldn't say it's super common, but it definitely happens. Okay, so going backwards, first I said the standing wall test. What the heck does that mean? So just like it sounds, you're going to take off your shoes and stand with your back to the wall. You're going to stand nice and tall. And then you're going to make some observations about your own spinal curves. And this test will work for the majority of people. It might lead us a little bit astray for someone who's really muscly. If you have really developed muscles, especially developed glutes, this test, you got to be a little careful with it. Because if you have really big glutes, a lot of natural shelf going on, then we might get some false ideas. So let me explain what the test is, and then you'll understand why that statement holds true. For most of us, it works pretty well, though unless you have, also, I suppose the inverse would be true. If you have like no butt at all, like zero glute mass, then maybe. So when you stand against the wall and your butt's touching the wall, your heels are touching the wall and the back of your head's touching the wall, then we should also have your two scapula flat against the wall or close to flat against the wall, not quite flat. And the thoracic spine just behind the center of the chest about should be very close to the wall if not touching. But at L3, which is, remember, at the height of your belly button, we have the apex of the lumbar curve. So what you can do is measure the distance of your lumbar spine from the wall. And to do this, you're going to use an anthropometric measurement, which is your own hand. So you're going to reach with one hand at the height of your belly button and slide your fingers between your lower back and the wall. And if you can slide your whole hand all the way through that gap without moving, you have, without a doubt, lumbar lordosis, unless you have absolutely huge glutes. On the other hand, if you cannot get your fingers between the wall and your lower back, or the gap is very, very small, less than a finger, then you probably have 
or this tells us you may have, we'll say, posterior pelvic tilt because your lumbar curve isn't pronounced enough. The proper curve is about the thickness of your fingers up to the knuckles. That is not the first knuckle, but the big knuckles, the ones that uh, are at the edge of your palm, not the ones in the middle of your fingers. So you should be able to fit all your fingers to that into that gap, but not your whole palm. And that's at the height of L3, the third lumbar vertebra, which is directly opposite your belly button. So that's check number one. And then you can kind of play with that. If your lumbar curve was too flattened, that is you couldn't get any fingers under there, well, then use some muscle and flex your spine a little bit. Or excuse me, extend your spine a little bit and see what happens. What happens when you push that belly button away from the wall and increase your lumbar curve? Do things hurt? Do things feel weird? Ah, well, that tells you that you probably have a posterior pelvic tilt because if you feel tension in your lower back or somewhere else, maybe in the front side of your abdomen, then that tells you that you probably have a posterior pelvic tilt. On the other hand, if your lumbar curve is perhaps a bit too pronounced and you've got too big of a gap between your wall and your lumbar spine at L3, then try pushing the spine back until it touches your fingers and feel what muscles have to contract and feel if there's any tension. There could be tension along the backside of your lower back and the muscles there, because as I was saying earlier, the erector spinae are probably tight. You also might feel tension in the front of your hips. Now, I could have also used this wall test for upper cross. So if we have the pelvis in alignment, we hold it at about the correct distance from the wall at L3. The interesting thing is you should also have the two scapula touching the wall and the back of your head. Now take note, when the back of your head touches the wall, first of all, do you have to forcibly push your head back to feel the back of your skull touch the wall? If you do, that probably indicates that you have forward head posture. Also notice that if you are stubborn and you push your head back and you're like, oh yeah, I can do this, no problem. It's just a little bit of muscle tension, no big deal. I probably don't have forward head posture. Now you need a buddy. You need your significant other or a friend to look at you from the side. Or if you're clever, you can use your phone and reach out and give yourself a selfie without moving. And what I want you to notice is the position of the chin. So whenever someone has a bit of forward head posture and they do this wall test and their heels and their butt are touching the wall and their lumbar curve is in about the right place and their scapula are touching the wall and the back of the head is touching the wall, if they have upper cross, their chin will be elevated. Their chin will be pointed up. We want the jaw to be in the occlusal plane. That is, we want the bottom edge of the jaw to be close to horizontal. We want your face to be vertical, not a few degrees looking up. If you do that, you're probably going to feel quite a bit of tension in the upper back and the neck. If you drop your chin, that is. So try standing against a wall with all these postural cues and see how far you are away from, we'll say, vertical reference optimal. It's I love this test because we probably all live in homes with walls with vertical walls, except for if you live in a weird Yoda house, or maybe if you don't have a home, or maybe your home is a mobile home, then you might have a trouble finding a wall that would work for this. Also notice that if you have a home like most homes in the US, you probably have some annoying trim kit around the bottom baseboards of your walls. 
because we use drywall, which is like the stupidest invention of all times. I'll get into a future episode perhaps about how much I despise American architecture later. But without bashing on America too much more, the wall board will also skew things a bit. In a perfect world, you find a bit of wall without wall board, right? Maybe a door might not have any protruding trim in the bottom of it, etc. Because it'll push your heels out, which will kind of distort things a little bit. And as I noted earlier, if you have excessive musculature, like really big glutes, or you have no glutes, you're like the world's skinniest person and you've got no muscle, then the lumbar curve recommendations have to be adapted a touch for that. So it's not a perfect test, but for most people it'll work pretty well because those muscly people also have thicker hands. That's why it's an anthropometric measurement. Anthropometric. I love that word, but have a hard time saying it sometimes. So that's one test you can do. That's a longer explanation of one of the tests, but it gives you a good baseline of where your posture is. You can also just stand somewhere in posture and then have your helper take a photo or video of you standing. And when they look at you from the side, the plumb line, the imaginary plumb line that drops from your ear should bisect the shoulder, elbow, hip, knee, and the ankle are really just in front of the lateral malleolus, which is a fancy way to say ankle bone on the outside. So actually what you do technically is align the plumb with the ankle bone and then draw it vertically up from there. If you're drawing said plumb, you can even do this with an iPad and use their little drawing feature to edit the photo and see where everything strays and then look at your lumbar curve. And sometimes you can visually see a bit of lumbar lordosis or posterior pelvic tilt but you got to be careful with that one because things like, well, shirts and clothing can disrupt it for sure. So ideally you see someone with their shirt off. Uh, if you're seeing clients, then of course, ladies wear a sports bra, but you have to be a bit cautious even there because bodies can be deceiving. There can be some visual trickery that goes on. There's some, some visual wizardry that happens. So that's why it's always best to actually measure ultimately. If you're not assessing, you're guessing, says one of my instructors. So the next is the stability ball forward roll. This is a good one that puts a bit of challenge on the torso and on the spine. So it tends to highlight any capacity or tendency towards lordosis or a flat lumbar spine, which would be a posterior pelvic tilt. So you're just going to be on all fours. You're going to put your elbows on the ball like you're in arrow bars. I love the fact that I can tell my cyclists to do this and they get it instantly. And you're going to start as though your legs, torso, and arms were in a box. So 90 degree angles at the hip and shoulder. And then you're going to roll forward. You kind of have to futz with where you put the ball exactly. Because sometimes if you roll forward, the ball doesn't move enough. And you kind of run into it. So you have to put it far enough out to where it doesn't get in the way. And just watch the posture of the spine. You'll need a helper to video you this uh, during this exercise. You want to start with a neutral spine at the top. And then as you get further out and you roll further out, you're going to extend both your shoulders and your hips as you roll the ball away from you, away from your thighs, that is. And you're going to look at your spinal posture. And if your lumbar curve increases, that is, it kind of dumps, then boom, there's your answer you are probably lacking a bit of lower abdominal tone and your spinal erectors are probably a bit too tight because they're used to holding on for dear life. On the other hand, when you roll out, if you stay locked and your lumbar curve doesn't have any curve to it at all, it's dead straight, 
then that means your lower back muscles are probably not doing their job correctly. And the pelvis is locked into posterior rotation and the stomach muscles are a bit tight and they're, the abs are making up for what the lumbar spine is not capable of supporting. So you've got an imbalance there. The forward ball roll will more likely show you a lordosis, a tendency towards anterior pelvic tilt than it will posterior. Posterior will just look normal, most likely. Then there's a really simple tactic to just video yourself doing squats and deadlifts. And I would say you don't need to do it with a lot of weight, but you're simply observing the spinal posture and you're watching to see if the lumbar curve is, we'll say, um, excessive. When someone deadlifts and they have lumbar lordosis, what happens at the bottom of the curve is they typically don't lose the curve at all. It stays very lordotic. So the lower back is still quite curved. And as a result, then because they're lifting a really heavy weight, then they get kyphotic or rounded in the upper back. So in standing with lumbar lordosis, you might look like your upper back looks pretty normal. Although frequently lordosis does create kyphosis, even in standing, the two curves tend to be exaggerated. So if one curve is exaggerated, if your lumbar curve is too, too large, then your, your thoracic curve tends to be too large also. Not always, but as a general principle, I would say that's probably true. Maybe not everyone would agree with me. So when you deadlift, this just gets magnified. So that's why we do it, is to watch someone do a deadlift. Of course, I don't do these screens if someone's injured or if they're painful. The point is to figure out what's going on, not cause an injury. And then the last bit I can give you is to use a dowel along your spine. So this is like the wall test, but you can do it with a hip hinge. So you're going to take a dowel and put it along your spine. You're going to wedge it between your butt crack and you're going to feel three points of contact uh, at the sacrum between your shoulder blades and at the back of the head. So stand nice and tall and then have someone help you and observe the curves from your spine, the gap between the spine and the dowel and notice is your chin angled up is your lumbar spine gap too much or not enough? And then once you reach behind with your hand, you can even use that hand to hold the dowel at L3. You reach behind with one arm and you grab that dowel and then you grab the other end of the dowel above your head is the best way to do it with the other arm. Then I want you to try flexing at the hip forward bend, but try to maintain those curves, right? So try to keep the same distance in all the curves as you forward bend as far as you can. And as you go farther and farther and farther, eventually everyone will start to flatten their lumbar curve when you go far enough. But if you go really far, like um, if standing is zero and horizontal would be 90, if you make it to 80, 70 or 80 degrees and your lumbar curve still has not flattened at all, you most likely have lumbar lordosis or a tendency towards lumbar lordosis. That is anterior pelvic tilt, which is the same thing as lower cross in the purposes of this discussion. Technically, they're not. This, lower cross is a series of, of muscles that are imbalanced and anterior pelvic tilt is a skeletal reference uh, marker. So they're not really the same thing, but anyway, you see my point. I just had to be clear on that. So if you get to 70 or 80 degrees, that is almost where your torso is almost horizontal and you don't lose any of your lumbar curve, 
you're probably you're probably looking at lordosis. On the other hand, if you get to 30, 40 degrees, 45 degrees, and you're already feeling the spine push into your hand at L3, that's across from the belly button. If you feel that spine kind of pushing into the dowel or the dowel pops away from your sacrum or pops away, um, most likely it would pop away from the sacrum, then for sure you have posterior pelvic tilt. What we're doing is looking at how you move dynamically. So it's a really simple way to see how that curve changes, right? Because anyone who has posterior pelvic tilt almost, almost inevitably will have a kyphotic tendency in the upper back. So when you go forward, what's going to happen is the upper back is going to round, it's going to flex, and that's going to pop the dowel away from your sacrum. So if you can't keep the dowel on those three points of contact and it breaks away from the sacrum early, that's probably posterior pelvic tilt. If you can go super far, way down low, before, almost horizontal before you feel it, then you probably got lordosis going on or anterior pelvic tilt. So there's a way to self-diagnose. So when we have anterior pelvic tilt, we need to increase the lower abdominal tone, right? And we probably have a tight anterior hip. That's the psoas and the rectus femoris. So again, good stretches for that are lunge stretches or couch stretches. If you want to see a great example of the couch stretch, if you don't know what the heck I'm talking about, just go to YouTube and search Kelly Starrett couch stretch, and you'll get some good examples there. That's a key one. So instead of sitting and watching all of Mandalorian season two on your couch with in the standard couch position, that is with your psoas nice and tight and flexed, you can put your knee in the backside of that couch and open up your quads and your psoas for at least a few minutes of each episode until we get to see what kind of weird space creatures he battles in this one. Apologies for the non-Star Wars fans or the people who have not gotten sucked into Disney+. Plus. I commend you. I fiercely fight subscriptions, and yet here we are. So another really important point about posterior pelvic tilt that relates to my mission to slaughter all modern cycling shoes and most walking shoes in general. Okay, what's the deal? Most shoes on the market have a fair amount of heel to toe drop, right? The heel is much higher than the toes. And this is for several reasons. One is that as Americans, we tend to be in go, go, go mode, and we're always trying to be somewhere. This is reflected in a lot of American citizens' posture. When we, when we stand and we do that postural test with the plumb line, you can see that a lot of Americans stand sort of almost leaning forward with their weight on their toes or in the balls of their feet, as opposed to having the weight on the heels. And there is a belief and a practice in Qigong that when you learn to stand and breathe through the heels, you are grounded and centered. And this is a really simple principle to demonstrate. If you go to yoga class and you suck at tree pose or any single-legged pose, the simplest thing you can do is drive your weight towards the heel and focus on feeling the heel drive into the ground or contact the ground and your balance will instantly improve. And this isn't just some parlor trick. Uh, this is also how humans are meant to walk the earth and balance and be stable on their feet is to drive into the heels. So when you spend your life run around on the balls of your feet, well, what are you doing? When you run on the balls of your feet, you're sprinting. The faster you sprint, the more, the less heel contact there is. If you're in a full out sprint, you're running on the balls of your feet. If you don't believe me, go to YouTube and search Usain Bolt slow-mo and you'll see what I mean. It's fascinating. So 
I don't know if it's a subconscious drive or what, but manufacturers have picked up on this and everyone, nearly everyone makes shoes with this massive heel to toe drop. I also think it's part of the endless quest to, um, we'll say fling around your peacock feathers and pretend you're something you're not and be a poser. Because when you wear a shoe that's got an inch and a half lift in it, then magically you're an inch and a half taller. And then, you know, the next morning when she wakes up next to you and realizes that you were false advertising, then she's upset. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not. If you picked her up at a bar, she probably didn't care, but it's, and it's all smoke and mirrors, right? So I personally prefer to always represent the authentic self. If I'm five, nine, I'm going to be five, nine. I'm not going to put on shoes to make me five, 10 and three quarters. That is bullshit. But there are more serious implications to shoes with heel to toe drop. So what happens when we jack our heels up and leave the toes lower? It's as though you are walking downhill all day, which makes walking easier or does it? So let's look at what happens as we go up the chain. When you see where I'm going with this, it'll make perfect sense. So we lift the heels, which shortens the Achilles, which over time makes the Achilles less flexible and decreases the range of motion in the ankles. It also shortens the muscles of the calf, the gastroc and the soleus. It also shortens the hamstrings and it makes your ass stick out. So if you don't believe me, go um, put your heels on something that's a couple inches high and then stand there and feel what happens when you tuck your pelvis under you and then stick your butt out. And you'll see quickly, you'll feel rather that Elevating the heels helps your butt stick out. It gives you lumbar lordosis. It puts you into anterior pelvic tilt. This is why men like high-heeled shoes for women. You put someone in four-inch pumps and it magnifies the effect of their ass. It literally puts them into lordosis. So this is a way for us to sexualize shoes in a way. Well, no, we're not sexualizing shoes. It's a way to sexualize women as objects. And we do this through high-heeled shoes right? It comes at the price of a great amount of postural stability for women. So, you know, I know I'm like a shoe dork and the shoes I wear are kind of weird looking and not everyone likes them. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine playing the archetype of the fool and the guy in the weird shoes, because that's what I believe in. And it's right for the function of my body. And it's also, I'm happy to lead by example and be that guy. But that means that relative to every other five foot nine guy on the planet, I am an inch shorter than they are or an inch and a half shorter than they are because they're all wearing whatever boost shoes with this and that on them or hokas. And they're artificially increasing their height, but they're also destroying their posture in the process. So when your pelvis is tilted forward because of the footwear you stride around in for hours and hours a day, you are enabling that anterior pelvic tilt. You're enabling this postural syndrome. And this is completely unacceptable to me. How do we offset our postural syndromes? Well, depending on which one you figure out you have, and I would be a bit cautious on that fact-finding mission, especially if this is really new and alien material for you, please don't go home and do the tests I've done and then come to some ironclad, magical, universal conclusion. Uh, If you're really not used to this kind of self-diagnosis, I would encourage you to go through it and make notes, either mentally or otherwise, and then go see an expert somewhere. 
see a check practitioner or see a really good PT and ask them what they think. And they can make some observations and, and either support your hypothesis or shoot it down in flames. But either way, it's going to be a good learning experience. So that's probably the first recommendation, especially if you're quite lost. If you're experiencing this type of thing and what I'm saying really resonates with you and it's putting together pieces of observations you've already made over years, then hopefully this helps you kind of clarify your own picture. Because again, the number one rule of being an athlete is of course to know thyself. That is essential. Also, I'll make a few notes uh, in regards to bike fitting specifically and why do we care about all this? I mean, I've been talking and going on and on about pelvic tilt, but who cares? And isn't pelvic tilt good because it makes you more arrow because you have a flat back? Well, okay, great question you might be asking. So let's examine that. I'll say that in regards to bike fitting, probably more of my clients have posterior pelvic tilt than anterior pelvic tilt, probably a good majority. However, I don't think this is the case with most humans. I think that it's probably safe to say that the average person who squats and deadlifts and then sits in a chair probably is more likely to have anterior pelvic tilt or lower cross syndrome. Why? Because when you sit in a chair, a lot of times you're, you are always sitting with your psoas in a shortened position and your rectus femoris. Those are the two hip flexors. So they're sort of being encouraged to not be at full length. And then when you lift, one of the most fundamental cues for lifting, squatting and deadlifting is to air quotes, keep your back straight. And a lot of people sort of overdo this and that ends up cultivating lumbar, increased lumbar lordosis or too much curve in the lower back at L3 would be another way to say that. So it's probably more likely for people who are not cyclists to have increased lumbar lordosis or anterior pelvic tilt, but cyclists are the other way around frequently because when we sit, there's a saddle between our legs. And especially if you've been sitting on a conventional saddle and still are like a turbo or a physique Arione or uh, some sort of flight without any kind of cutout or channel, then when you rotate your pelvis forward on the bike, you get a ton of pressure on your prostate. It doesn't matter if you're a guy or a gal, ramming your soft tissue into the front of a saddle is not a happy time. So you tend to shy away from that or rather be locked, uh, we'll say, limited by the nose angle of the saddle or the shape of the saddle. And that forces you to put the spine into flexion to get into that aerodynamic position to ride your bike. Hence, we have the rainbow spine, right? And we get all the things associated with posterior pelvic tilt. That is the inability or the poor ability to hip hinge and the inability to ride with a flat back. And as Jonathan Vodder said on my podcast a million years ago, whenever that was, two, three years ago, he said one of the most fundamental differentiating factors between riders that are good time trials and those that aren't is the ability to hip hinge and ride with a flat back. Pretty simple. So what I mean by ability to hip hinge is to maintain a straight spine when you go into hip flexion or when you go back to that dowel test, go pretty darn far without losing your lumbar curve. In order to do that, you have to have the ability to have a lot of hip flexion. That means your femur has to be able to come close to your chest at the top of the stroke, especially. But wouldn't it be good to have anterior pelvic tilt then, Colby? You're saying, surely. These are the questions bouncing around in your head. He said, telepathically understanding the voice of his audience, to which I responded, well, okay, the problem is whenever you have a posterior or anterior pelvic tilt that's excessive, we have the same characteristics, which is muscle length tension imbalances. So when your pelvis is dumping forward, what are we losing? 
Well, okay, first of all, we have tight, really tight spiner, spinal erectors. And that probably means they're going to hurt when you start climbing because you're going to start having more instability in the hemispheres of the pelvis, the left and right aspects of the pelvis, as you drive each leg independently. And the spinal erectors are going to try to stabilize that pelvis and they're going to eventually fail or get fatigued. Also, when you have lack of lower abdominal tone, that fails to control adequately the pelvic floor and the lower abs. And so the pelvis can start rocking side to side. So you're going to start bleeding energy. You're going to start potentially having problems with saddle sores or feelings of twistedness on the saddle or rotation on one side of the saddle, right? This is probably ringing bells for a few people at this point. But the same can be true for posterior pelvic tilt, right? So we have long, weak spinal erectors, and we have probably over-contracted abs, probably not lower abs. Usually I find that my cyclists have pretty poor lower ab strength across the board, but we have long, loose hip flexors and we have tight upper abs is typical. And remember, this is one of the complications with upper cross. I'm not sure if I talked about this in the upper cross pod, but one of the things that can cause upper cross syndrome is when people do too many crunches. Because what you're doing is shortening the front side of your body, which pulls the spine into flexion. It pulls the upper spine towards the belly button. When those, when that six pack abs you got going on or eight pack um, or nine, nine abs, if you're like Lego Batman, because he has an extra ab. When you overtrain those and you make them hypertonic because you're always doing crunches in the flexed position, then you you're building the capacity for kyphosis, which is rounding of the upper spine, forward bending of the upper spine, flexion of the upper spine. So this is what I would find is common for people who have a little bit of posterior pelvic tilt is they've got long uh, inhibited spinal, spinal erectors. These are the muscles that are on the backside of the body like your quadratus lumbordum that help keep the spine erect, as you might imagine from the name, spinal erectors, right? Also multifidus can be long and weak in this situation. So the rider tends to have muscular activation that's very poor on the posterior chain, and they tend to kind of almost hang off the lumbar ligaments. And the problem there is that Riders can feel this is very efficient because they're sort of hanging off the ligaments. But of course, this is not a healthy posture to ride around in all the time because you're going to make those ligaments really lax and you have no muscular activity. So sure, it might actually be more efficient on some trivial level at submaximal intensities, but that efficiency is going to be traded for the likelihood of pain and injury later when you do all these miles and your body can't doesn't have the core strength to keep things aligned when you start going hard and you get sloppy, right? Really what we're looking for is a healthy hip hinge. When I'm bike fitting, I like to use the dowel when people are in the hoods to see how close the spine is to this parallel line. I don't expect them or want them to maintain normal spinal curves when they're in the flexed position in the hoods. 
Um, that's probably not realistic, but I want the spine to be relatively straight because you spend a lot of time riding in the hoods and we don't want to put excessive pressure on the lumbar or thoracic discs of the spine. Disc problems, as I mentioned, are usually painful and um, usually expensive to fix and time-consuming. So we like to avoid those, right? So excessive flexion or extension of the spine, especially held statically for long periods of time, can definitely be problematic. We want to avoid this. We also want to avoid shoes with large amounts of heel-to-toe drop. What's my solution? Begin to walk barefoot. The rules, as always, do not freeze, burn, or puncture your feet and watch out for dog bombs. Wear shoes that are minimal, that is, have enough room for the toes to splay and also have a very flexible thin sole, ideally, so you increase proprioceptive reaction, uh, proprioceptive sensation with the earth and the surfaces you walk on. And of course, don't forget that we want the shoes to have zero or close to zero heel to toe drop. And if you've been wearing shoes with a giant heel to toe drop forever and a ton of padding and you go out and get yourself a bunch of minimal shoes like Vibram Five Fingers or Vivo Barefoots or Wildings, be prepared for some adjustment and don't do too much too fast because you probably will get injured. Your feet are weak from being supported by foot pillows and your Achilles are probably really short from being jacked up in the air on little ladders. So uh, proceed with caution, young Jedi. One last bit on bike fit here. Um, the SMP saddles can actually enable anterior pelvic tilt. So this is what one of the things I like about SMPs that's also a challenge is when someone comes to me with a posterior pelvic tilt and we put them in SMP, at first they have the sensation frequently that they're they're sliding forward or they're rolling forward on the saddle all the time and they don't like it. And that's because they're accustomed to being limited and supported by the nose of a saddle, a traditional saddle. But when we set up an SMP, we put the nose quite a bit down on purpose because the saddle really shines at allowing anterior pelvic tilt. So that can be quite enabling for some riders. Um, if they've been wanting that but couldn't get there, then it's like a hallelujah moment. But if they aren't sure or they're not used to riding in a position, then they might feel really good for a couple of days. And then what's going to happen is they start riding with it with their sacrum rotated forward suddenly their their spinal erectors are going to not be as stretched which will feel nice but it's going to increase the need for lower abdominal tone to stabilize the pelvis and because especially if they went from a conventional saddle with a rounded center section like a sort of banana shape and they go to an smp and they don't have a lot of pelvic stability that is their pelvis is rocking side to side even with the right saddle height well the likelihood of them getting chafing or pressure on one or both sit bones is probably pretty high until they start to develop more fluid pedaling and also develop a bit of core strength to handle that model of saddle. And ultimately, it's probably going to be a better solution for them and work out well in most cases, but some riders may not be able to get over that impasse if they have pretty dreadful core function, right? For someone with an SMP, uh, so, sorry, for someone with a posterior pelvic tilt who changes to an SMP, that can be the kind of curve of challenge that we have. If someone has 
anterior pelvic tilt, they already have hyperlordosis, or that is to say lower cross syndrome, and we put them in NSMP, it can actually be a little bit dangerous because it can enable more of that behavior, right? So we have to be cautious about not putting the nose too low. We want to actually prevent them from dumping their pelvis too much um, because that can further enable their postural syndromes to get a little more off balance. And then of course, as with all my bike fits, rider education is paramount. I mean, all this, I can spend four hours with someone tinkering with their stuff and playing with things to make them feel good when they go out the door. But this whole paradigm explains exactly why when I fit someone, education and discussion are such important parts of my process. Because if I just send them out the door without them knowing any of this, they're just lost. And I'm not saying I've educated everyone on all these points. I certainly haven't. I'm learning as I go. And every time I have another client who goes through this process, I figure more out. That's the beautiful part of it. And also the challenge. The infinite fractal of the human body continues. So um, another way, I didn't bring this up till now, but another way to think about the posterior pelvic tilt is bad dog posture. Most people tend to remember that pretty quickly. So when we're pouring the soup out on our heels, that's also called bad dog. And when you say bad dog and you know what a dog looks like and the posture it assumes, you you know what I mean. They tuck their tail and they tuck their pelvis in, right? I try to be precise with my anatomical descriptions because it's easy to get off track. And it's easy for people to say things like, arch your back. Well, arching your back in the lumbar region or in the thoracic region obviously mean different things and they have different implications. But to some people, arch your back actually means flexion, right? It's not always clear. So I try to use multiple terminologies and also common reference points. Hopefully I've done that effectively in this podcast. If you're really lost, I'm sorry. Uh, if you're super lost and you have a good question, email me. That's what's up. I think those are all the points I wanted to make on anterior and posterior pelvic tilt. Just one last concept to unpack, which is that as we tilt the pelvis forward, we also tend to bring the femurs into medial or interior rotation. So imagine your patella, that is your kneecap. And imagine that when you're walking and running or riding and you're in perfect alignment, those kneecaps have headlights attached to them and they are pointed straight forward, right? And the two beams are parallel. And this would be, we'll say perfect alignment. Now, during running and especially sprinting, those two beams do not remain parallel. In fact, the faster you go, especially at the world level, you can see this pretty clearly, there's some pretty wild deviations in the, the directions of those beams. When the athlete pronates, the headlights will converge. That is, they will cross each other. And when they supinate or externally rotate, the headlights will deviate away from each other and make a V-shape, right? And then when they're neutral, they will go into parallel. This is how I think about pronation and supination of the entire leg, which is a bit simplistic because we don't necessarily always have the entire leg doing the same thing. But for now, let's keep it at that concept, right? So as we rotate the pelvis forward, let's imagine the whole pelvis rotating forward, both left and right sides or left and right innominates as they are known. We have a tendency for the femur to internally rotate. And when the femur internally rotates, the headlights will converge. Also, the foot will pronate. That means the arch collapses. And strangely, the foot can actually be heel out. 
during this time. It can also be heel in. This is what I this is part of what I mean when I say it doesn't always necessarily go along in a line. You can have someone who pronates and their toe goes in, that is they are pigeon toed, or you can have someone who pronates and their heel goes in and their toe is out, that is duck footed. Probably duck footed is more common, but either can be the case. So as we pronate, uh, remember pronation, we tend to think of pronation as a thing that only happens in the foot, but actually pronation can describe any joint in the body. Pronation is simply collapse towards the midline or movement towards the midline and supination is movement away from the midline. So when I supinate my hand, it is though um, I roll my hand out and up. So the palm is up as though I were holding a can of soup, hence the term supination, right? There's your mnemonic for that one. Pretty easy. So as the innominates come forward, we tend to internally rotate the thigh. As the innominate or the pelvic halves come backwards, that is posteriorly rotate and go into bad dog position, we tend to supinate. And that means that the femurs roll outwards and also the kneecaps tend to go outwards and diverge. Our headlights diverge and they make a V-shape. Now, strangely, again, the feet will probably more often be duck-footed in this situation. I, there might be some people who disagree with me with this. This is just my observation. This is what I see. There probably is someone out there who disagrees with this. Hit me. Let's have a discourse. I love it. But the point I'm getting at is the relationship between external and internal rotation of the femur and the position of your pelvis. Now, remember at the very beginning of the podcast, I said we measure both the left and right hemispheres of the pelvis because the two halves of the pelvis, while they are attached by lots of ligaments and all sorts of other things, including bits of fascia and muscles, although they are attached, one can rotate, one can be rotated further forward than the other or vice versa. One can be posteriorly rotated and the other can be anteriorly, anteriorly rotated. There's probably a limited amount that those can happen without some sort of severe injury. I don't know what the number of degrees of difference is. That's a good question for someone who knows more about this stuff than I do, but it's probably not more than five or six degrees, I would say, unless we've had, we're talking about some sort of very unusual situation, like a surgery or a congenital abnormality or something like that. So this is one of the presentations that is so common when a rider or cyclist feels that they are twisted on the saddle, Right. And for those of you who have this sensation of twistedness, I just want to let you know that we tend to think that we're the only human or the only cyclist who feels this way, and you are not. In fact, probably the majority do over time. Uh, hence my, my posit that cycling is not a natural sport. Uh, it's, this is just one of the many dysfunctions that cycling will bring about in the human body. The list is quite long, unfortunately. So what am I saying? Well, if you notice certain asymmetries in your own levels of mobility or limits in your ability to externally or internally rotate one thigh more than the other in the hip socket, there could and probably is a correlation between the rotation of your pelvis. Not necessarily and not for sure and not most likely, but probably, meaning more than 51% chance. I've never seen any science on this and I really don't know what the hell I'm talking about in terms of statistics. I'm making this up, but I'm making it up based on what I've seen, whatever that means. Um, also, I'll note that while I've seen a lot of bike riders, I haven't done detailed movement screens on all of them because it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I can. And I will also note that my 
cross-section of data is skewed by definition because I'm looking at cyclists, right? Just as I was saying earlier, most weightlifters, from what I've heard in other podcasts and discussions, have are more likely to have an anterior pelvic tilt or lower cross, and most cyclists are probably more likely to have a posterior pelvic tilt because the saddle gets in the way. In any case, when you examine your own external and internal hip rotation, you can start to put pieces together. And if it matches with what you see on your own cycling stance, then you can start to put pieces together. For example, if you notice that one of your knees tends to collapse in towards the top tube, that is internal rotation of the femur. I would suggest that that pelvic hemisphere has a higher probability of being further anterior tilted than the other side. If you have one knee that tends to wander out from the top tube, there's a possibility that side of the pelvis is more posteriorly rotated than the other side. We don't know that this is the case, but it probably is. There are other explanations for this that may play a role, but they also could go along with the posterior or anterior pelvic tilt of the anominates. Now, which side is in range and which side is out of range? Meaning, do you correct the side that's more posterior? Do you correct the side that's more anterior? Mm, that's a complicated question uh, and requires a fair amount of digging and insight and knowledge and a good bike fit. So there's all that to consider, right? But what I'm pointing out is you can start to do a little self-diagnosis and some treatment. It's pretty simple. If you notice big ranges of limitation, uh, if you, sorry, let me phrase that sentence. If you notice big discrepancies in your range of limitation left to right, then the rule is if you can't, you must. So your next task is to go to YouTube and Google Paul check 90, 90 stretch. If you don't know what a 90, 90 stretch is, most of my clients don't try this. Notice the differences left to right. If you have and understand that what a 90, 90 stretch is, you lay on the floor and you put a 90 degree angle at both knees, but one knee is externally rotated. One leg is externally rotated and one leg is internally rotated. And so what you're doing is comparing external and internal rotation between the two sides, the two legs, and then you windshield wiper over and put the leg that was in external and internal and the one that was in internal and external, and you compare left and right internal and external on each side. And now you have some data, which one feels really, really tight. Ah, if my internal on the left is terrible, that probably means my left hip is a bit trapped. We'll say in external rotation, right? It's, it's easier to go into external. So it probably lives there. It can't go into internal when you're stretching it. So that means it's limited. Maybe I'm thinking about that backwards now that I say that out loud. I'm going to put a pin in that because it could be that you can't get to where you're already trying to go. could be you're trapped in internal on that side. I don't actually know. I'm talking out my ass right now, but I'm going to leave it running. Do you have some thoughts on this? Do you have some experience? Send me an email. In any case, I invite you to do some fact finding and see what you see what you find. The best I can do is describe humbly that the human body is by far the most complicated thing ever, way more complicated than taxes or bottom brackets or music, physics even. Well, because all physics is contained in the human body. So I would offer that uh, I'll be studying this for the rest of my life. And as an athlete, to a certain degree, you should study the rest of your life 
you should study yourself and your own movement and your own performance. That's what I got. I just left my podcast with my own question. I hope you enjoyed that discussion on lower cross syndrome. I hope you learned something and I sincerely hope that I didn't confuse you with my terminology and that things are relatively clear. Questions, comments. Um, do you hate my podcast? Do you think it sucks? Do you like my podcast? Do you think it helps you? Please let me know in an email. Uh, you can find all that information on my website, colbypierce.com. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Pedal fast. Pedal consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.